Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the first episode in our new series, Linked to Our Music Issue. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, we'll be talking about Pete's lead editorial, Why We Make Music. And then we'll be welcoming Mary Townsend to talk about the Aristotelian magnificence of Dolly Parton. So Pete, you uh, have an editorial here, as you do in each issue. This one is titled, Why We Make Music. Do you want to, you, uh, you start with a story about an Anabaptist um, martyr slash songwriter. Yes. So I start with the story of Euronymous Kels because we don't want to start too lightheartedly in what might seem like a kind of frivolous topic, right? Um, the story of Euronymous Kels, though, has always fascinated me since I was a little kid. And there is this big book called the Hatterian Chronicle that was begun in the 1570s, and it tells the story of the Anabaptist communities that began as part of the Radical Reformation in the 1520s. Um, and most of it is a kind of year-by-year account of their doings and uh, where they got persecuted, largely, uh, where they went to next, uh, and also just some random ephemera and some great stories. There's, of course, many stories of Anabaptist martyrs, one of whom was Euronymous Kels, one of the earliest, and he was a school teacher. In fact, uh, when my wife grew up in a Hatterian colony in the South Dakotas, they still say the prayer before meals that he wrote when he was the school teacher in the community back then. Uh, but he was sent out on mission, and he was uh, from the community, and he was in Vienna on a night in January, 1536. And there was this drinking game going on, and the other people in the pub said, hey, come on and join us. And he wasn't so sure about that. Um, and his refusal and that of the two friends who were with him actually um, resulted in them being suspected as Anabaptists, which was a capital crime then. And uh, one of the people in the uh, in with them wrote a little note to the other in Latin, not thinking he could understand it. I think these two guys are Anabaptists. These three guys are Anabaptists. And uh, they passed that uh, to a judge, and two hours later they were arrested. So how does, what does this have to do with singing, you might ask? What does this have to do with singing, Pete? Because when they were locked up in Vienna for three months, they were kept in separate cells. Um, they were first interrogated, first kindly, and then under torture, pressuring them to recant, um, turn in their fellow Anabaptist believers. Um, they were then separated into different cells. And one of the things that impressed me as a kid reading this story uh, was the letter that he wrote to his fellow prisoners. And he somehow managed to persuade a guard who seemed to be really sympathetic. In fact, there's records of like Viennese people coming to visit them in prison and helping them and making supportive noises outside the jail, which is kind of weird if you think about it. Um, but they were in separate cells, not allowed to talk to each other between you know these torture sessions. And they figured out, as many prisoners have since, that they could communicate by singing. And in this letter, he describes um, what a joy it was. He says, I rejoice with my heart to hear you sing, especially you, do, you, dear Michael, when you sing in the evening. I can understand almost every word if you are sitting right by the window and I listen carefully. And I love hearing each of you for I rejoice when I hear you singing. Uh, so let's keep on shouting until we are hoarse. 
And that's how they encourage each other. And I remember our teacher or someone telling us at the time, you know, that's kids why it's so important to learn lots of songs and sing. Because if you're ever locked up <laughs> and about to be martyred, you can sing and encourage the other people in prison. So that is a tip for you. There's there's a really good life hack. Did, has that ever come in particular handy for you? Not yet, but I, I repeated that to my kids. Okay, good. All right. Um, you also mentioned that there were a couple of Anabaptist lyrics that you wanted to uh, share. Yeah, so the wider point of the story, though, was, of course, the Reformation was this uh, huge spiritual revolution, but it was accompanied by an enormous musical outburst. Mm -hmm. And those things seem really strongly linked. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Martin Luther himself kind of propelled his his reformation through the power of song, mm -hmm. through writing many, many hymns, um, which were sung, uh, and this whole idea that the common man and woman should be able to learn the gospel and sing it um, during their daily work, doing whatever they were doing. Uh, and that became the basis of him singing in Western Christianity and the basis of essentially Western musical culture in many ways. Um, now, there was an Anabaptist version of that uh, happening simultaneously. And for the Anabaptists, songs were even more important than for Luther because they were, imagine, harassed, being driven, you know, from, from country to country, uh, often far from their homeland, separated from family, uh, without the ability to do a lot of writing or institution building. They didn't have a University of Wittenberg. They didn't have theologians uh, sitting comfortably in Strasbourg writing books, defending their ideas. What they had was songs that they sang to each other that either just taught the faith, so many of them are just Bible songs, um, or that told the stories of martyrs like Geronimus himself who wrote songs in prison and sent one of those to his wife. Um, in his farewell letter, uh, there were songs that um, were often quite long. And I mentioned my wife who grew up in a Hitarian community. They still sing many of these songs. They, many of them are long ballads that will tell a story. Um, the Amish sing songs like these as well, many of the same songs. Uh, and there's, this is what they pass around. This is how they stayed connected. And it's, it's kind of a hackneyed metaphor, but I think it's really applicable here. Mm -hmm. Songs literally were kind of the social media network of their movement. Uh, they were the, the way information was passed around and that a people was kept connected, um, that the faith was passed to the next generation. And they're, they're really interesting songs. I mean, there's this one uh, that, for instance, about uh, Elizabeth, the Anabaptist martyr, 1549 in the Netherlands, and it describes in great detail, blow by blow, her debate with the priests who were um, interrogating her under torture about her views on the Mass and on baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, and it describes in detail, you know, and you can imagine seeing this in, 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 in an Anabaptist church, um, you know, how she was subjected to the thumb screws until, it says, the song says, until the blood squirted from underneath her nails. And and so these are, you know, songs that would keep you awake in church. Uh -huh. um, and you can imagine why 
they would be sung, much as, you know, epic poetry was sung, right? These were the heroes of the faith who were being remembered. But it, 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 it is, there, there is, and this is just a sheer digression. Can I make a digression? You may make a digression. So Martin Luther and the Anabaptist songs were reacting to medieval church music, uh-huh. which was in an ad orientum type mass sung typically by the priest, although not always, um, using plain chant. And there was this strong Protestant and Anabaptist critique of this plain chant for being getting too complicated, um, too artificial. And so you'll notice that Luther's hymns and the Anabaptist ones tend to be very straightforward. There's one syllable per note, typically. Um, and they're designed that way to make them easy to learn. Uh, and of course, the other criticism was that the plain chant was in Latin uh, and wasn't available to the common man. So fast forward to today, and if you go to an Amish church, uh, you will find that they still sing these songs, but because they've passed them down now for 500 years, they've developed a form of chant that goes with them that is extremely complex and melismatic, and there is up to nine different musical notes per syllable, um, and they're sung in a certain way, and of course they're sung in a language that isn't people's everyday uh, language, right? They're sung in an old church German. Uh, so. I'm not making any point here, except that I think that's pretty cool. It's sort of carcination. It's like the way that animals keep evolving into crabs, like chant keeps evolving into chant. Yeah. So chant always wins. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think the purpose of, uh, of doing this issue isn't to rehash 500 year old history here or to talk about chant as nifty as that is, but because a lot of that sense of a participatory musical culture isn't really working out that well right now, and especially not after the COVID pandemic. Right. So one of the things that you talk about in the editorial is the fact that, like, you know, most churches, despite the sort of predominance, unfortunate predominance, many of us think, of sort of worship band style uh, music, most churches still have a choir, or at least, you know, a good, a little more than half, I think you said at least. Yeah, 46%, yeah. according to the last survey. Still have a choir, but that was uh, up. That was before COVID. And COVID gave us the experience of a world without communal singing. And uh, that was a pretty rough thing. And I think for a lot of us, one of the most powerful experiences of the, in as much as we are, I mean, we're not post-pandemic, but we are in a different, whatever we're in. Anyway, it was really good to start singing again with other people. And it was really good to start singing in church again. And um, that was a powerful kind of marker for me, and I think probably for a lot of other people. Another another thing that's affecting singing, and you can see that in churches, and we have a great article about that, by the way, is Congregational Singing Dead by Benjamin Crosby in this issue, Mm -hmm. is that... The Reformation was born out of a wider culture of singing. People sang already. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't want to make massive generalizations about, you know, nowadays people don't sing like they used to. But the fact is that, you know, in the age of, of uh, you know, earbuds and Bluetooth and constant music, uh, 
our relationship to music, as to so many things, has massively, massively changed. Uh, we've been reprogrammed to approach music primarily passively. Um, and so you see, and I have no idea if this is quantifiable, but anecdotally seems to be true. And I can say from my church community here, I think is undoubtedly true that it doesn't come as naturally or comes much less naturally to sing together in church or to sing together in most places than it did at a time when, you know, uh, people were more likely to kind of break into song as they were kind of doing, going about their daily work. Uh, I can't remember where I read this, but there is, it is pretty much the case that the only people who regularly sing with other people um, in American life, other than, you know, a couple of niche people who belong, who are kind of hobbyists and belong to choirs, which are a very small number, are people who sing in church. Church is one of the last remaining communal um, singing locations so this is one more 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 place where you know the technological revolution of the last 15 years has kind of removed us from our own bodies our own you know maybe unlovely sounds that we make when we open our mouths and try to sing mm -hmm. and kind of replace that with a, a polished performance that is immersive for us um that doesn't call on us to actually join with others and you know literally breathing together in the sort of physicality of singing as a community. Now that that in itself, I don't think is enough reason to do an issue of plow around. Um, just one more you know casualty, you might say, of some very massive shifts in society and culture over the last you know little while that has affected many people. And you could say, well, there's, there's much bigger things, you know, at stake uh, than whether we sing or not. From a Christian point of view, I don't think that's true. Nope. I mean, one of the things that I had kind of tried to get you to write about a little bit in your editorial, which you didn't end up writing about, but I'm going to say it now, is that arguably, like, what, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can understand what we are doing when we you know, worship and what we are also, what we are looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. But one of the ways that that is described um, is that when we worship, we're actually participating in this kind of continual choral worship service that's going on in God's heavenly throne room. This is like, and, and that is an aspect at least of what we are going to be doing in eternity. Like this is literally what we are for. This is, talk about Telos. This is what we are for. My, um, a uh, pastor's wife, who's the music director at our church, Amber Saladin, often says, like, it is ridiculous. She refuses to entertain the idea that there are people who are not singers because she says, your bodies are made to sing. Like, the roof of your mouth is shaped like a resonating chamber, the way that a good, um, you know, an acoustically sound, um, you know, in interior space concert hall would be shaped like. The our our vocal cord we are we are a musical instrument that we are designed to play and when we don't sing we're not doing that so what you just said is i'm going to back you up with a nice early fa church father please do gregory of nyssa if the entire world order he writes in commentary on the inscriptions of the psalms 
If the entire world order is a kind of musical harmony whose artisan and creator is God, as the apostle says, then man is a microcosm, an imitator of him who made the world. Uh, since everything natural is compatible with nature, music too is in accord with our human nature. And he talks about how, therefore, David um, sang to God. Uh, of course, the Psalms have been central first in the Jewish liturgy and then in Christian liturgy. Uh, the Bible tells us repeatedly in the Old Testament, repeated in the New, to sing to God. Like, this is not just a minor concern. Martin Luther, you know, the guy that we love to bash on this pod often, <laughs> often with good reason. But when it comes to music, the man was right on point. Um, here's, a, here's a great Luther quote. Uh, Experience testifies that after the word of God, music alone deserves to be celebrated as mistress and queen of the emotions of the human heart. Uh, he says famously too that music is an endowment and a gift of God, not a human gift. It drives away the devil and makes people cheerful. One forgets all anger, unchasteness, pride, and other vices. I place music next to theology and give it the highest praise. Like, there's something about music, and of course, you know, uh, philosophers of music have written about this for a while. But music goes straight to the emotions, right? Uh, Plato recognized that. Aristotle recognized that. Um, the Confucians recognized that, as I mentioned in my editorial. Uh, Luther certainly recognized it. Th that was what the German romantics were trying to get at when they spoke about music as giving us access to the absolute, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of BS, but uh, it's true to the extent that it music cuts through the need to verbalize or to conceptualize and goes straight to the human heart. And if we believe, as we do, that human beings are made in the image of God, mm -hmm. then its ability to do that is a kind of sacred thing. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, it obviously because everything kind of comes back to political theology for me because I'm an annoying person like that. Um, the question of music and the way that it kind of ties together different layers of the world often seems to me to be parallel to the way that we think about the way that politics ties together different layers of the world. So, you know, if you think about like personal virtue is like self-rule, you know, you compare that with kind of rule in a family, rule in a city, and then God's rule of the cosmos. At the same time, especially if you kind of get back to what I do not believe to be disproven um, aspects of cosmology, um, like the idea that there is a kind of um, music of the spheres that's going on in the universe. There's this sense of when we sing, we're actually being tied together with uh, the music that, that the actual universe makes as it's operating. And that there's something there that, um, that like brings us right to the heart of kind of we're, we're peeling back aspects of the cosmos and getting kind of in there among the gears, so to speak, when we sing. I was amazed reading some of that medieval um, philosophy of music, you know, the Musica Mundana, you know, Bethius writes about this and, and others um, following him, that it's actually pretty sophisticated. It's not like they imagined that the, the stars are up there making little tinkling sounds as they revolve around the earth um, as they might've imagined. They saw this music as, a, as, as, as you say, a harmony, a, a system of order, um, which is reflected in the fact that there are laws of physics. Yeah, this is like, this is, and obviously thinking they were also operating with sort of the Pythagorean understanding of the 
interrelationship between harmony and number. And so, you know, this is why I don't think, like, whatever. I, I have this thing where I don't actually think as much um, medieval cosmology and physics have been disproved as we think. Um, but I think that one of the ways to think about that is that the fact that we can actually even the fact that there are rhythms and predictable um, laws of motion is an expression of that same musical aspect of the cosmos. So even if you're listening to this and say that's all hogwash, I think what we do want people to realize is that singing is something that is deeply human in a way that very few other things are, and that it also has a huge and deep connection to the human soul and to the life of faith, and then through that, to the building up of human beings into uh, communities, whether that is a political community or, very specifically, the Christian community, which is constantly told to sing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs to God yeah. as one core way that the Christian community constitutes itself. So when we're not doing that, there, there's a really big problem um, let's bracket even the Christian stuff aside, though, for a moment. Because Plato, of course, famously, had a, took a great interest in music uh, to the degree that he actually sought to, or depending on how you read the Republic, uh, would have liked to ban different modes and harmonies, you know, from his ideal commonwealth because... Music has such power over us that uh, it's not only for the good. It can be threatening. It can be dangerous. It can lead to disharmony and disorder and bad things. Personally, the Mixolydian mode does make me a worse person. Okay. I went on YouTube, and I looked for a whole bunch of reconstructions of the Mixolydian mode, and I listened to them, and I tried to feel those feelings of, uh, of evil, um, I think softness and whatever it was, uh, temptation to drunkenness uh -huh. or whatever that the Mixolydian mode uh -huh. w would supposedly make me feel, and I didn't feel that. But Oh, but you are you are worse today than, like, I don't know, when we were hanging out a couple days okay, ago. Okay, so, so that's like, probably visibly, what did. Yeah. And, and weirdly enough, Martin Luther himself mm -hmm. was pretty concerned about the power of music for evil as well as for good. And, in fact, one big reason he, you know, stole a lot of folk songs the tunes and set them to Christian words, is he was really worried that um, having people singing sort of these courtly love songs or kind of coarse secular folk love songs um, all day to themselves rather than singing about spiritual things to themselves as they milked their cows or plowed their fields or did whatever they did um, was going to actually really hurt them as Christians. And so he wanted to have the songs be as catchy as possible and as holy as possible. Right. And, and he managed because we still sing many of his hymns today and they form the basis of, you know, some of the most sublime music written, like Bach's Passions and Oratorios. Is there, do you think there's bad music? Uh, oh yeah, I think there's bad music. I think, I mean, so I, one of the pieces, the piece actually that went up to, uh, to, we, as we are recording this, today um, by Don and Jay Jagannathan, who's a friend and has written for Plow Bunch, uh, is about bad music. And we kind of got into a little bit of like a, 
we we were sort of like trying to figure out whether like something whether you could call whether basically whether all moral panics having to do with bad music are just moral panics and can, and can be dismissed or whether some moral panics are justified and i actually think that they're like you know marilyn manson for example like the guy is telling you for years and years who he is and is making music that is inviting you to celebrate what he knows to be wrong and what he's intending to be wrong. He turns out to be a terrible person in real life. Yes, like I think music is powerful and like part of like sort of respecting the actual power of music means respecting that yes, music can make you worse. You can you can um in in various ways. Like I don't think that like I don't know death metal is like the only kind of bad music and I probably it, it's possible even that there is some good death metal. Um, but like, yeah, music can make you worse. Music can, um, make you coarse. Uh, music can make you thoughtless. Music can make you, um, sort of even good music, I think can make you bad in, in various ways. Like if, if there's a very kind of like stirring patriotic melody that stirs you up to do terrible things. Right. I mean, the most, the most obvious form of that is if you think to the role of song in the Rwandan genocide. Mm -hmm. Or I recall a good friend and mentor of mine uh, who had escaped the Holocaust. She came from a Jewish family in Dresden and she remembered um, roving bands of SA thugs going through Dresden outside their house, mm -hmm. singing, you know, a very catchy melody, but the, the words were when Jewish blood runs from our knives, you know. And um, so m music can be a, a terrible thing. There was, uh, and even good music that's good in and of itself and doesn't have bad words can play a weirdly um, horrible role. There's a, if you go on YouTube, there's a, an absolutely chilling um, video of a performance of Beethoven's Ninth, the great ode to freedom, uh, to, to joy, mm -hmm. right? Um, being played by the Berlin Philharmonic um, with Goebbels in the audience and an uh, audience full of the Nazi uh, top brass in the midst of World War II. Um, and it, give, it, it tells you that there's, there's no way I'm going to say Beethoven's Ninth is bad music, mm -hmm. right? But it tells you that music is not automatically good or yeah. automatically used for good things, mm -hmm. even really good stuff, good music. Mm -hmm. I also do think there's music that is bad in itself. I definitely don't argue with you on Marilyn Manson. Um, I think the problem with moral crusades against music is often that they have the wrong targets. Mm -hmm. um, so they'll go after rap music for having curse words. Mm -hmm. Which, okay, fine, like, you know, there's music I, I don't want my teenage kid playing in the living room. Mm -hmm. um, but there's different kinds of badness. Mm -hmm. I think a kind of badness we don't look enough at, and here I'm probably going to just alienate everyone, is I think, I'll, I think the vast majority of contemporary Christian music is bad music. Mm -hmm. I think it's facile. Mm -hmm. It's derivative. It attempts 
to say things in an insincere, a fundamentally insincere way. It tries to use uh, the real energy of the genres of music that it opportunistically adopts in order to somehow do Christian messages. It tries to do the Martin Luther hymn thing in a bad and unconvincing and embarrassing way. And just as I will not allow like my kids to play Marilyn Manson in our house, I will not allow any CCM in our house either. <laughs> That's outstanding. I mean, I was just reading an essay by someone we're going to be speaking with um, in a couple of uh, a couple of episodes from now, Paul Buckley, who sort of like looks at the lyrics of he's ba- he's basically making the case for singing psalms as a major part of your worship music, and he it describes the experience of being the music director in this evangelical church and the pastor was like preaching through the the book of psalms and then they would it would be like you know the the sermon would be about the text of the psalms which obviously we know the psalms they're all over the place they're very intense they're like the opposite of facile and then the worship music that would go with that sermon would be like some of this happy clappy ccm stuff and it was like viscerally bizarre to sort of think about that. This is not the kind of music that we are invited to sing normatively. Now, that said, we had a bunch of CCM artists write some great uh, pieces for our issue. And um, despite our, my massively overgeneralizing uh, comments just now, um, we don't think you're all bad. Uh <laughs> But I do think that that the question of sincerity and goodness in music goes far beyond slapping happy Christian messages mm-hmm. on essentially elevator music mm-hmm. um, and thinking that there's something virtuous to listening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also just, frankly, really uncomfortable with that style of music becoming the soundtrack of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not, like you say, it displaces the Psalms. It displaces, displaces things that are much more substantial. It also tends to displace music that's meant to be sung communally yeah. with music that's focused on a charismatic performer. So one of the things that I do think I'd like to talk about here, I'm trying to think of uh, if we have someone else who's addressed it in the issue, is the way that music through the history of the church can draw parts of the church that are fragmented because of schism and because of et cetera um, back together. Um, you mentioned Bach earlier, and one of the things that I, it's a really common observation, obviously everyone says this, but I can remember my dear friend Laura pointing out to me that, or describing to me this kind of weird vision she had of, because of something like Bach's Mass in B minor, she she felt like, listening to that was kind of like experiencing a possible alternate history of Christendom where the Protestant Reformation hadn't needed to happen or where, you know, whatever you think of it, where that those two halves of the Western church hadn't fallen apart, but where they were as they are in that, you know, mass written by a Protestant um, musician um, reunited in some way. Um, and that's always struck me as, deeply mysterious like it's, it is kind of alternate alternate history and the way that we pick up um songs from each other um 
another sort of Paul Buckley quip, which is not written, it's just something he mentioned um, at one point, is that um, he was trying to convince uh, an evangelical church again to sort of adopt psalm singing. And they were a little bit, you know, they were reluctant to do it because it was Catholic. And, um, or at least, that, you know, that's what they perceived it as. And he told them, um, he pointed out the fact that one of their favorite regular sort of staples of um, the music director, Crown Him With Many Crowns, was actually written as a uh, rosary related hymn. Um, these are just like, these are things that we can't help. At, you know, as divided as we are by theology and by polity and by history and, you know, painful pasts, we can't help stealing music from each other and giving music to each other. And you'll see that a lot of Martin Luther's hymns are in many Catholic hymnals uh, and certainly vice versa, right? Um, you know, the Bruff hymnal has Ave Verum Corpus by, by Mozart in it. Um, so go figure. You also have a bunch of Marian hymns. Correct. So what we hope we'll explore over the next few episodes of this is why communal music making is important. And we want to convince anyone who needs convincing that this is every bit as urgent a culture war issue as your favorite culture war issue. Um, it's not just a matter of, you know, the nice aesthetic trimmings of a common life, but really music as Plato and the Confucian writer and Aristotle and Martin Luther and lots of other people have said really is constitutive of what it means to live well as a human being and live well together. And that's what we want to kind of get into. And now, we'd like to welcome a very special guest, friend of the pod, Mary Townsend, who's written about Aristotle and Dolly Parton. Mary is a professor of philosophy at St. John's University and the author of The Woman Question in Plato's Republic. Welcome, Mary. Could you, Mary, tell us, what, why is Dolly Parton magnificent? Well, you know, um, when I originally made a joke about this on Twitter, I was just thinking about um, the way that she spends money the news about the vaccine research that she donated to had just come out um, and everybody, the internet was sort of going crazy and, and singing vaccine to the tune of Jolene. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it was, there were, there were some good jokes that day. Um, but it was like, people were sort of astonished that somebody would be so thoughtful about spending money in this way. And so it just, I immediately connected to this special kind of um, virtue that most of us don't really have access to in Aristotle. Um, you can be an ordinary human with an ordinary income and be generous to give to people at the right time, with the right respect, um, what they need. But there's another virtue called magnificence, where if you have an, a really, really true fortune, then you get to start spending for the public good in ways that sort of like are brilliant and beautiful and over the top, but not vulgar. Um, but if you stent a little bit in your lavish spending, you're going to be chintzy. <laughs> Um, so it just seemed to me that the vaccine is one example, but as I did research for this article, there's so many. It's actually kind of terrifying how many examples of how well she's able to spend. Um, so she does this thing with wealth, but then the, it turns out that like magnificence in English kind of really just describes her entire persona and personality as well. 
I remember seeing that tweet and just thinking, wow, that it would be a fantastic plow article. And I guess we uh, talked about it and, and you agreed to write it. And it's turned out so fantastic. And, and in a way, we're not even going to attempt to summarize the article, no. but we'll, we'll nibble around at the edges, especially the fun ones. You, you just mentioned um, Dolly's sort of literal magnificence and the way she's contributed to the public good. My sister uh, used to live in a, a pretty low-income county in southwestern Pennsylvania where a lot of kids were eligible for her imagination library program. And just although she doesn't particularly care for Dolly Parton's music or persona or anything, um, could not stop saying good things about how wonderful the imagination library is, not just in the idea, but in its execution and the selection of books and how it was how it was run and the impact it had um, on the kids in Fayette County, uh, Pennsylvania. So it's the type of thing where there's not only, you know, great announcements and great PR work, but also, you know, really happy kids in places you don't think about necessarily very often. So you contrasted Dolly with other sort of potentially magnificent people, although less magnificent in various ways. Do you want to talk about that contrast and uh, like, are there other people who are equally magnificent or similarly magnificent who you can think of? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I think people like um, the Carnegies with their libraries and the Rockefellers, I guess you could sort of lump like Bill Gates and so forth in this kind of category. They do spend money lavishly, great wealth, um, but they they tend it tends not to be very specific. I mean, it, it, like the grants tend to be sort of amorphous, and then they obviously commit certain injustices <laughs> with their wealth <laughs> that the magnificence can't quite make up for. Um, I think this is at work in Aristotle, too. I think when he's sort of explaining what real spending for the public good in a beautiful way would look like, he is sort of thinking about um, wealthy Athenians who don't live, you know, don't live very well um, and commit great injustices. But there's a sort of a way in which he's teasing them with the possibility of the kind of great reputation that magnificence would give you. Um, So Dolly is both a good person and a good spender in this way. Um, and she, like as Pete was saying, like she's very, very good, not just like writing a check to some amorphous public good project thing, but just finding this very, very specific way to intervene in people's lives. Um, the books are well chosen. They're creative um, for this imagination library. It's not like, oh, can we give the kids an extra test to figure out, you know, how to get them more literate or whatever. It's like, here's some nice books, which is actually just very specific and very and very kind and thoughtful. It's concrete. Like, you can't really imagine Dolly. I, I don't know whether Dolly's ever been to Davos, but I can't really picture Dolly at Davos. And I can't picture her using her wealth towards something like, um, I don't know, the, the world. Like, you can't really picture Dolly and Klaus Schwab in the same room. And although it would be kind of fun to see them in the same room, um, she, she doesn't seem to be trying to shape society in, uh, like, according to a personal vision or... To try and she doesn't seem to be trying to get people to be um, to adopt, I guess her, her values. Except that she kind of does by creating these songs that are lovable and that sort of um, th- describe things, describe good things in a lovable way, or 
you know, sad things in a way that evokes sadness. Um, so there's a kind of accuracy in her songwriting that I feel like is is kind of shaping of the public conscience in a way. But she doesn't do the massaging of society thing that, uh, you know, the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation tends to. No, that's a really good point. Because um, she's not she's not trying to make something happen, but try to give a gift. But um, but knowing that only like the right gift will work, um, which is just so perfectly Aristotelian. So Mary, as as a professor of philosophy, I'm I'm going to tempt you with this next question. To to, to but um, I, I will lead you into temptation with the question: Can you just break down for us um, the meaning of magnificence as you discuss it in your essay? Um, so we talked about obviously um, Aristotle, and we've mentioned him. Um, how does this fit in? Um, what are we really talking about? This virtue of magnificence, and you know. Maybe there's other places we could see it. In Aristotle's philosophy of life, he thinks that the point of life is to be happy. It's it's the goal that sort of collects all of our ends and purposes and choices together. And the way you do this is to repeatedly do things that aim at the beautiful, but aim at the beautiful that is a, a mean in proportion to your own temperament and your own means and abilities. Um, so happiness is activity in accordance with virtue. What I found when I was writing the article is that great soulness is another sort of strange virtue that doesn't quite make sense at first, um, that really Dali seems to exhibit that almost more than um, anything else. So let me see if I can describe that for a bit. Um, the classic virtues are things like courage. It is good to be courage if you can bring yourself to, um, to be brave at the right time in the right respect for the right reasons. Um, you simply will be happier. Um, Aristotle's got this great line about no one can be happy if they're afraid of every insect that that floats by. <laughs> you have you have to have a little bit of something like courage, something like generosity, just to get along in any sort of real way with, with other people. But then there's other special case virtues that um, seem to, to, to be like for humanity who sort of managed to organize all the virtues already, but then they add something a little bit on top. So great soldness is a kind of self-knowledge. It's understanding that exactly what your capacity for deeds in life are. And if you understand yourself to be um, a person who's capable of moderate things, then that's self-knowledge for you. Um, but if you underestimate yourself and consider yourself capable of only small things, you're going to be small-souled. Uh, whereas the great-souled person is the person who knows that they are capable of great things. And, and they are actually correct about themselves, and they manage to make that part of their life. So he describes this, Aristotle, as a way in which great soulness, this kind of self-knowledge, ornaments the virtues. It almost sort of brings them to life in a way. Um, because it's not just about, did I act morally right in this way? But do I understand my place in the world in a way that launches me into the world in a beautiful way? So you also discussed a little bit... Um some of the ways that Aquinas tweaks this virtue um, or tweaks our understanding of it. And uh, you also described the way that um, kind of Aristotle's description of the magnanimous man um, is actually a little bit unappealing in certain ways. And and do you think that Dolly kind of... And doesn't doesn't fit a short uh, girl from Tennessee. Yeah, it's it's this funny <laughs> debate in among Aristotle people if... If Aristotle's kind of making a joke about the great-souled man, in the same way that I think he's kind of teasing the wealthy people, 
the the wicked wealthy people in Athens with the hope of spending money well. I think he's also sort of teasing the idea of like this this masculine warrior who's tall and walks slowly and has a deep voice. And um, I mean, he's he's talking he starts talking about physical characteristics rather than characteristics of soul. And so it does actually kind of look like he could be making fun of. Um, I mean, what do we really want out of virtue? Do we want to like look and sound good, or do we want to actually have a beautiful soul? Um, so by the end of his discussion of great soulness, I think you get you get pointed to like a little bit more of a really human way of thinking about that. Um, but so there's also another thread where it could, it could be that Aristotle really does think that if you're not tall <laughs> and you're not a dude, you're going to be missing some kind of um, way of existing in the world. <laughs> um, it disqualifies so many of us, doesn't it? <laughs> but so, but so like. Dolly is such a great example because she has this quality, like she embodies it. And the way you can tell is because it's just so visible and it's not just visible in one thing that she does, but it like sort of like has seeped into the entirety of her life. Even just the smallest story, like, um, like spending the Whitney Houston money on, um, shoring up a black neighborhood in Nashville. Um, just little things like that sort of point to the wholeness of her character. So I think, I think it is possible to be a petite, a petite blonde woman from Tennessee <laughs> and have this kind of virtue, um, even though she sort of has to play with that aspect of her, her visibility in order to like sort of really make it land. And she does that, uh, as, as she herself pointed out, I believe, uh, as, as you mentioned in a conversation with Barbara Walter, uh, that sh- show business is a joke, right? And, and, and so she, unlike Aristotle's maybe ironic, magnificent guy, slow walking and deep voiced, um, has a sense of humor about herself. There's another aspect to um, sort of great soldness that she also seems to fly in the face of, which is this sense of like, if you are a maximally magnanimous man, then you can't really have any friends because there's no one who's as good as you. You're just, you're, I mean, you're Gaston, but like if Gaston were like actually that good, he's, he's just sort of sitting there and you don't, um, sorry, Beauty and the Beast reference. I'm th- ashamed of that. Um, and you you can't really, um, th- there's no one for you to look up to. And there's no one for you to be a peer of. And Dolly certainly does not have that. The When she, there was this description of how she reacted when she heard Whitney Houston's cover of I Will Always Love You. So Dolly wrote I Will Always Love You, which is a really incredibly well-written song and, and very moving about renouncing a certain kind of love. And she wrote it while she was still under contract to this, what looks to be a pretty abusive musical partner who had a television show, Porter Wagner. And so when you see the video of her singing the song, it's like there's this tension present in her whole her whole way of presenting herself that like Dolly has no tension ever when she performs. Like there's something that she's not telling us when she's singing the song. So flash forward several decades into the future, um, and she had given she had sold the rights to Whitney Houston. There was a there's a story there about um, how how it all came about that they were going to use the song for the movie, The Bodyguard, a classic film. <laughs> but so um, so when she heard the song on the radio, she 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 had to physically stop driving because she was so amazed and and sort of in awe of of what she was hearing, and I think this shows pretty good aesthetic judgment on her part because. As good as she can perform this song, there's something about the way that Whitney Houston does it that like makes it into like an epic, an epic musical moment. Um, 
in the article I described when it came out when I was about 11 <laughs> and just how like the whole like the whole landscape of life became about this song because there's something so captivating about it. Um, so I think it takes I think it takes a certain kind of great soulness. And maybe this is more sort of like where we get into some of the Christian virtues um, to be able to sort of see when someone surpasses you and they surpass you with your own art. And not just be like, well, she surpassed me with my own art, um, but to actually physically feel joy at the fact that someone managed to take something that you made and make it into something even larger and more more beautiful. And I think that that quality in her, like once you start thinking about her character, it it, it explains that car pulling over story. Like just just when you're sort of like, oh, it's a funny story, like, oh, she pulled the car over. But when you think about it as a moment of like cosmic recognition on her part, it's really damn impressive. <laughs> Uh, and it's not the kind of thing that I think a lot of artists could really allow themselves to feel. And I mean, it seems to me that that's really related to one of the things that you talk about early on in the piece, which is, you know, this other extremely useful Greek word, which you mentioned before, kalos, just the idea. Do you want to discuss that word and how it's related to our happiness? Yeah. So um, the goal or the end point or the telos of, of virtue is in some way to aim at beautiful action. Um, in Greek, this word is kalos, and it's it's kind of a funny word that we would translate it as beautiful that doesn't quite capture all of its, its range of meanings. Um, there's an element to it that means beautifully good. In English, you can be beautiful or good, or you can be beautiful and also good. But it's, it is sort of hard for us to have the kind of moral imagination to see the beautiful and the good as united in this way, as they are in this Greek word very naturally. I always ask my students, like, who speak several different languages coming to me in Queens, like, if you guys know of a language that does this as well, please let me know. Um, but there does seem to be a divorce, a divorce in it in our thinking. Um, so I think, and I think that's reasonable. I think that, I think that beauty is not quite the same thing as goodness. But there are moments, and this is how we ought to, to aim to live our lives, where we can unite a beautiful action that's visible and lovely and has a sort of speaking and shining quality to it with things that are also straightforwardly actually really, truly good. So I think like it's not just because Dolly's a performer that she manages to have this quality, but there is something very nice about the blend, the sort of like seamless blend of both her human virtues and then also her performing virtues as well. Yeah, and it seems to me, uh, you know, that this is a bit the secret of why she's somebody who's both a, a darling in red states and gets glowing write-ups in the New Yorker and New York Times, right? Um, there's many people who roll their eyes at Dolly Parton, but it doesn't seem to be a lot of people who, who hate her, dislike her, or... Um, you know, and, and a lot more people who just have this kind of irrational, um, yeah, uh, love, I guess, for her or for what she represents. You know, from a Christian point of view, and of course, Plow is a Christian magazine, um, the the kind of Calvinist um, response to all this would be, well, you know, um, what about uh, the fall? What about the... Um, you know, do the Calvinist thing, uh, Susanna, <laughs> for us. You know, we are it's not just a Calvinist thing; it's a Christian thing. Oh, okay. it's, it's an uh, Augustinian that's... thing. It's an Augustinian uh, okay. thing. Okay, yeah, okay. okay, right. We will get into that another time. <laughs> However, human beings are um, deeply uh, deplorable through and through, um, 
And uh, that also applies to Dolly Parton, right? Um, as she herself, actually, as, as, as I see in the essay, um, uh, refers to herself as, yeah. in one song as a poor, sinful cr- creature. Yeah. Um, so how do we reconcile um, the kind of love, to be able to just actually praise and love a person, mm-hmm. um, like Dolly Parton, who has this greater-in-life persona, and is also just a celebrity who makes a lot of money, right? Um, where this kind of sus- suspicion that probably comes from Christianity to some degree, that actually everyone's kind of full of it, right? Um, <laughs> and it's so much easier to write a long essay pointing out how a widely beloved fi- figure is actually full of it uh-huh. than to just write in praise of them. Yeah, I think, um, well, truly the theology is kind of above my pay grade, <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. I um, the The love that we feel for Dolly... <laughs> seems to be like a sort of a, a, a reconciling love. Um, there, like, if, if there is a presence of love here, and, and there very obviously is, both her for us and, and her fans for her, um, that's got to be like a, like a Christian red flag, like a klaxon, like some, some kind of presence of something that's important. Um, I don't think people are deplorable <laughs> um, through and through, although I certainly have my Sophoclean tragic moments. Um, oh, I was trying to, I was trying to spur Susanna there to give us, <laughs> give us some original sin, but she hasn't obliged yet. <clears throat> One of the things that's impressive about Dolly is that it's not like she's just sort of like lucking into virtue. It's not like she's just accidentally good and that her decisions are just sort of like, you know, like just sort of things that come naturally to her. They are, they are some kind of, like, they all come from this very thoughtful, loving, like, decisive and deliberative place um, that doesn't just sort of, like, ride on, like, natural goodness, but sort of reconciles itself to what goodness is possible in the world. And because she does, I think, hit some kind of, like, remarkable balance point for this, like, it, it does spill out in a way that feels, like, larger than itself, in a way that it's not like she's, like... <laughs> it's not like she's actually divine, and yet she sort of makes visible what <laughs> she makes visible what 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 is like what reaches towards that in us. I would say. Well, how about this? This is not going to be as Calvinist as apparently everybody wants me to be, and I, I'm not even a Calvinist. Good grief! Exactly. Um, but I do think that one of the things that uh, Aquinas um, noted, Calvinist Thomas Aquinas, sorry. I just said that to make everyone on Twitter mad at me. I don't really believe it. Um, <laughs> um, uh, one of the ways that Aquinas tweaks the the virtue of um, uh, magnanimity is that he he talks about the the greatness that we have um, that we accurately recognize in ourselves as being a gift, and it certainly seems to me that Dolly, the way that Dolly gives reflects the fact that she's she is the recipient of some kind of generosity from somewhere like she seems to be reflecting god's generosity into the world and i think that that's i mean i think that's theologically accurate and it also just seems to be experientially accurate like when there there are plenty of people i don't know i'm kind of thinking of the olympics um where they are excellent and, you know, they might even make an enormous amount of money 
you know, with through, I don't know, Nike endorsements or something like that. Um, but you feel that their excellence is clawed from the, from reality, um, that it is, that it's broken them, that it has, that has taken, that nothing has been given to them. They have taken that excellence by force. And there is something amazing in, in, in watching that kind of excellence too. Um, and obviously I'm thinking about, you know, figure skating where there is this sort of sense of grace um, and effortlessness that comes through that that clawed from reality excellence. But with Dolly, it's not like, obviously, you know, it, it's not the case that she doesn't work hard. She definitely works hard. But even the way that she describes her ability to rhyme, um, you know, she said, I always knew that I could rhyme words if I needed to. It was just like, it feels like she's the channel of gratuitousness, of a gift. It goes back to maybe like the, re- the relationship between magnificence and great soulness. In that, like, it's not just we're not impressed with her and love her simply because she is great. Maybe and maybe that's sort of an analog to um, the the clawing out of virtue that you're describing, Susanna. Um, but yeah, it's like when she when she gives back, when she finds the right place to intervene, whether it's the vaccine or um, the reading or um, my favorite bit of trivia is the really impressively successful bald eagle sanctuary at Dollywood. Which is very cool. It's very cool and so random, but I think I suspect her of having a thing for eagles because it's something that comes up in her in her song lyrics a fair amount. Um, but so, yeah, there is something gratuitous about it. And it does, it does like, it's not just that it alters the world that it's so lovely. It's just that someone would try and that they would be so good at it. Um, it kind of makes, it softens the world in a way. Now that that makes sense. Is there anybody else besides Dolly Parton who is magnificent? I mean, there's many people who are equally famous, right? Um, it's hard to think of a lot of other people in in the mode of yeah. of the one that you wrote about in this essay, Mary. No, and I guess I'm. You guys have to help me up because my ignorance of of, of culture, cultural figures in the world is um, is present here. Um, I guess I just know so many people that give money because they feel it's the right thing to do, but they don't they don't understand that there's a sort of sense of lavishness in the world that especially if you have this great wealth that that it is just simply good to um, to do. I've got this um, this there's a story. Um, <laughs> Can I tell this story? I, I know somebody who gave away a great fortune because he thought that it was sort of unjust to possess it as a private citizen. Um, and then goes around and sort of does like pretty low-key charitable work um, in a city that will remain nameless. Um, but like he he sort of like he sells art prints, you know, for 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 peace from from homicide um, in the city. But so what, one of the things that I just can't understand is why he didn't like put a new school building in every public school in New Orleans. Like that would have been like a very, very small fraction of his wealth. And it seems like there's something small sold about that. Like when you have this responsibility to give broadly, the possibility of giving broadly, just to be like, well, it's it's too much for me. I can't do it. Um, One thing that I did think is like we have, we see charity often happen through um, organizations, which is, which is not terrible. Um, But there is something special about one person who who does this sort of decision-making process instead of a committee that describes you know picks which grants um to make happen you've got like one human organizing principle dolly and that does seem pretty rare 
So I, I, I think, and I'm not sure, this is probably departing quite far from Aristotle, because we're not talking about grand fortunes, but I know of a group of people in the village I used to live in, Nicaragua, uh, who, because of their work, um, and it's a subsistence village where people are living literally hand-to-mouth, and so are they, um, but because of their work, have access to comparative wealth, you know, relative to the rest of this village. And um, one of them is a really good friend of me, mine. And um, whenever they have money, more than what their family basically needs for the next month, and the idea of sort of saving for the future for their family seems to be foreign to them, they'll for instance, go around and buy medicine for all the old people in the in the surrounding villages, and they'll put a big celebration together for the kids for Christmas. Um, or they'll, you know, repaint all the churches in the surrounding villages. And they've been doing this for like 10 years, um, when by any sort of normal standard, even my own, um, I would say, y- y- you guys are you know, living hand-to-mouth yourselves. Why don't you put some money away for your kid's education or something like that? But um, there's this kind of joy in finding the meaning of life and kind of spending what in those circumstances is vast wealth, right, on something um, that is very targeted, um, that creates much good, but isn't sort of attempting in a sort of Bill Gates kind of way to, you know, um, make a measurable impact. What it's doing is making some people very, very happy. Um, And uh, it's an expression of of human-to-human love and care um, and community building that I'm I'm not sure is sort of captured in your conventional NGO metrics. No, I I like that example a lot because it makes me think about the difference between this kind of generosity and something that looks more utilitarian in that like there's not there's not this sort of like ever shifting calculation ever shifting attempt to sort of like measure just exactly how much good we're supposed to be doing in the world um our our small actions like what exact impact do they have on people how many how many lives do we save but like finding something so specific that you can you can just tell that it's 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 beautifully good in that moment uh, and it's worth it's worth spending like not on yourself but on these other people um, I keep going back to, to like vi- visual metaphors. Um, cause there is something like, I don't, I don't have to calculate the amount of good that those people are doing in that village. It's just, it's right there in the story. It's right there in the example. I mean, thinking about that kind of doing of good in contrast to something like Peter Singer or something like, you know, all of the ways that, I mean, what, what we're talking about is virtue ethicist charity versus utilitarian charity. Um, and the utilitarian version of it, first of all, is not, you're not like, there's no sense of that what's behind the action is important. There's no sense that like the, the selfhood that's behind the action of charity is important, but you know, it matters that Dolly is the one behind the, you know, the specific books that are given. Um, it's not just that the books are themselves imaginative and, and excellent and that that is a, a gesture. There's a meaner there. There's not just meaning. And 
you know, with a sort of more utilitarian version of what is the most good that you can do, you know, in a kind of effective altruist way, it it seems that the the person who's giving tends to disappear or like there doesn't really need to be someone who's giving as long as things get done. And mm-hmm. I don't know, there, there seems to be, to me, to be something much more humane and less kind of annihilating um, about, I guess, a more virtue ethicist approach to charity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in that, like, in utilitarianism, the motive doesn't matter, just the consequences. So character never becomes right. an issue. There's just, character doesn't matter. Right. Um, right. So, like, but that deprives us of a, of a, of a person to love. Um, to um, know that someone made a decision lovingly, to whom we can be um, great, to whom we can be grateful, um, it really just yeah. it flattens the flattens out so much. So as we conclude, Mary, as as you were putting this piece together, was there a particular Dolly Parton song that you found yourself listening to over and over again? <laughs> this is funny. My children, um, <laughs> my children went through a cycle where they were really into Dolly, then they were sick of her, then they got really into her again because I listened to so much. Um, I really loved, I found like from her very first album, there's like a um, a very modal sort of Appalachian song that she sings um, called Don't Let It Trouble Your Mind. Um, that's, it's like almost in a way the, the flip song, the flip side of something like um, I Will Always Love You. And that like in this particular song, she's sort of saying like, it's a breakup song, but she's sort of more more willing to sort of like, to sort of be frustrated with the circumstances under which the breakup takes place. Um, and so like the modality is, is very spare. It's more Dorian. Um, so like related to minor, but sort of more open. Um, that, that I loved because I always think of her as a, like a larger, more commercial, like eighties, nineties Dolly, who I, whom I also love. Um, but sort of hearing her like just sing an Appalachian ballad was very, was very oh. good. Um, was very good for me. Wow, thank you. I'll have to check that out. Thanks so much for joining us, Mary, and for writing this beautiful piece. Thank you guys so much. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met, and share it with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $32 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council, so go to plow.com slash subscribe to learn more. Join us next week when we'll be talking with Brittany Petruzzi and Paul Buckley about why you should chant psalms, and with Stephen Newby about why you should sing spirituals. I love the berries so on the pitch best that we are.